Hello, welcome to the latest regular podcast from Blurred, where we explore the trends shaping our world, uh, joined by uh, interesting people from business and politics and culture. Today I have the honour of talking to Lord Jim Knight of Weymouth, previously Minister of State for Schools in the uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown government, and now Chief Education Officer at Tez Global. Hello, Jim. Thank you very much for talking Hello, to Stuart. me today. It's a, a joy to be with you. Um, we're going to talk a lot about education, not only because it's your passion, but because it's clearly the single most vital subject anyone can talk about. Um, I'm going to ask a big question to start. What is the role of education today? So it used to be to arm children with core competencies for a job mm. market, but with new business models rapidly emerging seemingly on a daily basis and new approaches to work and employment, do we need to reimagine what education is for a new world? I strongly agree that we do need to reimagine education. Um, and it's easy to think that the way we were educated or the way our, even our parents were educated is the way education and schooling has always happened and should always happen. Um, but it is dynamic. If you think back to the pre-industrial age, the vast majority of people were, were learning by doing in the fields um, and in a master-apprentice relationship if they, were to, if they were lucky enough to get into a trade and to get an apprenticeship. And then a, a very privileged few would have tutoring or if they were going to join the clergy they might go to university. And uh, then in the industrial age that evolved, um, we didn't manage to leave behind having long summer holidays which were designed around collecting the harvest. But we then um, evolved into a need that came from the economy for people to be more literate and numerate uh, and to also be more schooled, to be more compliant. So my granddad, who yeah, features in the uh, 1911 census as a, a locksmith aged f uh, 15 um, in Wolverhampton, uh, he'd been to school for the, a school run by the Sisters of Mercy in, in Wolverhampton for Irish immigrant families, where basically he was taught how to turn up on time, do as he was told, read and write sufficient to do factory work and that's what he did and his destiny at that point was set out for him by his education um, and it was at a time when you know two or three percent went to university now you know he served in the first world war and that changed him and it changed his ambition and outlook on life um, my mum went to grammar school so that was at a time when education sifted people on the basis of an exam taken at the age of 10 or 11. She was lucky enough to make the cut. So her destiny, without going to university, was to be able to join the professions because they, you did articles and you learned on the job. Uh, and you know, she met my dad who was doing articles as an accountant. They were both professionals, both went to grammar school. And uh, they were able to then afford to buy me a private education where the promise at that time then, you know, I'm 54, so you know, uh, what, 40 years ago, yeah, when I was 14, work hard, uh, get decent exam results. Those qualifications would 
get you into a decent university. At the time, about 13% mm -hmm. went to university. So you could then go to a great university, and you know, the private school specialised in getting its boys into Cambridge and Oxford. So me and my brother were the first in our family to go to university. We both went to Cambridge. And the promise then was, you know, job for life, choose whatever career you yeah. want, uh, get a final salary pension scheme, uh, you know, 30 year mortgage, you know, so no, 25 year mortgage probably, um, and pay it all off and be able to provide for your children and retire in your mid 50s. Now, the economy's changed. That doesn't exist anymore. Those final salary pension schemes are largely gone. The job for life is pretty much gone. The notion that you can retire in your mid 50s for the vast majority of people is gone. And 43% of people now go to university. It's very, very different. And yet, the diet of how we are schooled hasn't really changed from when my mum was at grammar school. Right, so I saw um, an interview, a, a speech you gave where you said, <clears throat> we can't afford to carry the dead weight of education failure that we're currently carrying. Yeah, so absolutely. So, you know, my dad's family, four boys, two made the cut, two didn't. The two didn't make the cut when joined, became agricultural labourers and joined the Merchant Navy. And uh, so their destiny was not work by brain, essentially, but but more by brawn. Yeah. Um, and we had an economy that could mop that up. We had an economy that could mop up people going into right. large factory work settings or marrying people who are working in factories and still have a level of security. And a welfare state then could afford to provide a safety net for the very few that were left behind. Those big workplaces largely don't exist anymore. We have uh, you know, significant numbers of, of people on, with benefit dependency that we can't really afford. And we need an, edu an education system that works for everybody, that works for every child. And the current model of siloed subjects taken at secondary after a more generalist primary education has never worked for more than about two-thirds of kids. Right. And it never will work for that final third because it's just not wrapping the education around those individuals tightly enough. It sounds like you're advocating a quite a wholesale I transformation am, I, of that. Yeah, I, I absolutely believe that we need to, to an extent, get off the middle-class indulgence of saying education for education's sake and just accept for the vast majority of parents and kids they want an education that equips them to lead a fulfilling life and a fulfilling life includes a job and we don't build talent pipelines for enterprise and for employers in the way that we used to and we need to refresh our education system dramatically in order to do that. And yes, education for education sake is really mm -hmm. important. And there's a nice coincidence here because when I talk to employers and, and ask them, you know, with their frustrations and what they want, they're saying, well, in the end, we want people who can learn collaboratively. You know, it would be pointless for us trying to predict what the future jobs will be. No one knows sure. that. And you know, narrow skills for those jobs. But we do know that you've got to love learning and you've got to love learning with other people. And that way you can create value. The impossibility of that, uh, or the futility of that attempt to predict what, what, the, what the jobs might be in the future is exacerbated, isn't it, by the fact that it's estimated a child born today will have, a, I think, a 50% chance of living to 
105 is the figure yep. I saw. You've called that this generation our education centurions yep. and talked about how important they are and I guess the acuteness of the, what we're talking about here that the world is going to change dramatically within their adult lifetime let alone completely so at the point which um, they enter the job market yeah I, I live at home with Claudia and her daughter Coco Coco is in year three so she will be eight in June she's likely yeah you know, she goes to local primary school lives in Lewisham but yeah so there's some advantage that she has with her, her parents she's likely to live to a hundred so she's likely to have a 60-year working life because I, I, I find it difficult to imagine that she will be able to access any kind of pension scheme that will provide for more than 20 years at the end of her life so 60-year working life we know already I'm on my fourth career that uh, she's going to have multiple careers so she's going to have to be able to pivot consistently through that 60-year working life. And let's say she had six 10-year careers. That's not bad. You could do a lot in 10 years. It might be four 15-year careers. Uh, it might not be quite as even as that. Um, but what's the education system that prepares her for that? Mm. It's not one that just says, you're going to be a doctor, you're going to be a teacher. I'd love for one of her careers to be a public service career, a teacher, a nurse, a doctor, you know, some, a police officer, something in the public services, because I, I profoundly believe in the importance of public service careers. But I'd love for one of her, her, her careers to be in something she started herself and that she built value herself. Um, yeah, there's a range of different things she can do. It's really exciting. It would be a life sentence if you thought that she had to do the same career for 60 years. Yeah. That's terrifying. Yeah. It's not going to happen. And the core of it is, is she resilient enough as a character to be able to cope with the change? And has she got enough of the learning skills to be able to direct herself in her learning and find people and places to learn with uh, so that she can then keep, keep moving and ahead of the game? We will come back to the resilience. That's a really a good, yep. interesting word because I think there's a whole mental health um, yep. challenge that we're facing at the moment, isn't there? But it, the kind of uh, inventive new vision for education that we're, we're talking about here, um, it makes me think of the increasing attention being, being given to discussion, of, certainly in labour circles, of a national education service, mm -hmm. um, you know, a radical, radical new uh, concept for the country. What's, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's a a great idea looking for a set of policies. <laughs> right, <laughs> as is often the way. <laughs> um, and we're, we're yet to really see what those look like. But yeah, obviously I've been thinking about that. You know, I, I would like a this to be a, a sort of user experience, if you like, to use the sort of digital <laughs> jargon, um, where you have an early years phase, which is all about play, and socialising and learning to enjoy going to school uh, and learning a lot of those social skills and those play-based skills and 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 that's the core and that's a lot of what they do in Scandinavia uh, and that that could and should be of the sort of length that they have in Scandinavia up to the age of six or seven and not be that fussed certainly mm -hmm. not that fussed about synthetic phonics um, and whether or not someone's reading they'll start reading 
Um, now, the experience in Scandinavia is they then have a pretty accelerated experience thereafter, um, especially for boys when they're much more comfortable with going to school. Because if you try and get them to sit still and do learning too early, uh, they start to fall out of love with that whole experience too, too soon. Then I, I would like to see us move to a, a sort of 7 to 14 phase, which is a broad and balanced curriculum, um, probably still is the national curriculum, uh, covers academic learning, covers some applied learning, covers creative subjects too. And then a 14 to 19 phase where we don't have GCSEs at 16, they're an anachronism, we don't need them anymore, it's now illegal to finish education at 16, why do we have uh, the national curriculum ending at that point, ended at 14 instead. Free up 14 to 19 then for some uh, ability for people to apply what they know more in, a, in creating more value. So creating knowledge, solving problems, doing more projects, um, going into more depth in areas that they're most interested in, finding the teaching and learning styles that they're most that they most relate to as individuals, um, with the ability to, to flex in within that, so you're not sort of set on a 14 yeah. to 19 course that you can't move out on. And then I would love to see people leaving school and going straight into work yeah. and disrupt this rite of passage of university, because my sense is we have a school system that's driven by the needs of universities, not driven by the needs of the economy, and that's a problem. And that... Uh, it, it's, it feels irrational to me to say to a young person at the age of 18, 19, OK, now's the time when you've got to make a decision that's going to cost you £50,000 and you better get it right because this will set you on the whole of your working life for 60 years. That's, that's bonkers. Yeah. Go and do a bit of work, possibly with a degree apprenticeship where you could get your degree through earning, mm. so earn as you learn. Um, but... Yeah, build some confidence, understand a bit more about yourself, understand a bit more about how you adapt to the world of work and ind some independent living that way. And then you might decide that with your employer or on your own that you need higher education or further education and you can make some more informed, better choices as a result. And I would then even be thinking if I were running a university around a subscription model for university rather than uh, one where you just grab a whole wad, wad of fees sure. um, through debt and say, well, actually, if I'm going to be changing careers multiple times, I'm going to want a relationship with a, a higher education provider that I can keep going back to. Yeah. Keep going back to for advice, keep going back to for reflection, keep going back to for learning. Yeah. And if I pay £20 a month through my working life for a subscription to a university, that provides a whole set of learning services for me. That's quite a good deal. It's a great business model for the university too. That's a, that's a fascinating idea, and I'm seeing actually a lot of that happening. I, I've recently subscribed to a, a company called Masterclass. Right. So it's home-based learning. Yep. They have world-class authors or musicians or composers, whatever it is you're wanting to yep. learn, and they deliver a, a, you know, an incredible course of content yep. through your phone or your laptop. And there's a lot of that. And, and I think a lot of what we're talking about here is the, the, perhaps the notion of the school mm. is actually what's out, uh, outdated. I, I'm fascinated watching my two six and six and four year old yeah. how they're learning, yeah. and they're both in in school. Um, and I, I, we've talked about 
you know, the work-life balance for years. And I'm, I'm really now thinking there's a, a school-life balance where the next yeah. generation are, are learning far more at, at home because of the internet, because of technology, yeah. because yeah. of the fact that uh, the parents' generation is more educated than previously. Yeah. Um, and and, and school's I'm, a place where they're going to have a rest from. And them. the school, the school's <laughs> role changes, but as a result of all of that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that. <coughs> yeah, without wanting to sound too much like a sort of digital cliche, <laughs> yeah, the school could and should be a platform for learning. It's a place that empowers you in your learning, that connects you with, uh, with content, with teachers, with other learners, and propels you forward. Um, at the moment, schooling is too much about being schooled. Yeah, that's being a great distinction. Compliant, uh, being put in boxes, uh, and I, th yes, of course, we want people as part of their childhood to learn the rules, um, learn our societal morals, um, because we don't want them going around killing people and. Yeah, and we're worried about that. Um, so they need to learn how to behave, but I think we, we've we got that way too tight, and we do want people who are questioning things a lot more, because that's how we're going to be more creative, and in the end create more value. What's your view, with all that in mind, on what uh, Greta Thunberg is achieving mm. at the moment, um, Swedish activist, because yeah. there is you know, someone who's obviously obviously very bright, gone through a school, a Scandinavian school system, but has clearly absorbed information and a worldview and, uh, and, a, and a value set from way more sources than just her schooling. Yeah. Um, and she, and she's uh, inspirational in a way that um, Malala is inspirational. Yeah. These are young girls who wake up and decide to change the weather. Don't you wish we had at least one person like that in the UK Parliament right now? Well, well, um, and yeah, we'll come so, on to that. <laughs> so, since that, um, something's happened where a, a set of uh, capabilities of um, a mindset—it's a mindset where you can go, yeah, the the world is driving over a cliff, and it's not my responsibility to just analyze that and shrug my shoulders. My responsibility is in my own small way to do something about it. Yeah. And both of those girls have done that. They have said, well, up with this, we will not put. But what's interesting, particularly interesting with the, in Greta's case is that the, the kind of way of the forcing function for the, for, for attention for her issue mm. is children walking out of school yeah and and absolutely and clearly not worrying about an impact on education because yeah. school is something yeah. different now it is uh, and th yeah that's interesting yeah um, the notion yeah there are one or two examples in our industrial past of school strikes so that's not entirely unique but um, but you know, even then, there may have been a sense among some people that school was schooling them to be something that that they're not mm. and that they shouldn't be, and that um, 
and that as a protest having a strike is no great loss and you know, having weighed it up you'd say well yeah actually we can achieve more for ourselves and you know any one of those children around the country around the world mm -hmm. who are responding to her call and making a difference through their collective action um, they're learning a lot more I would argue agree than the hour or two that they're missing from school or the whole day they're missing from school and as a parent who took my child out of school on Friday I, I agree I I mean the reason that she's risen to such prominence so quickly is obviously because of social media technologies that the great disruptive force uh, blurring the lines between all industries and ways of working how do you feel about it in a school setting technology is a tool mm -hmm. And like any tool, you shouldn't be using it 24-7. You need to learn what's appropriate. And I think it's really hard for parents, because we didn't have these tools when we were growing up. And so we're, we've got no role models. We've got, you know, hopefully we talk to each other enough to understand what each other are doing. But it's really hard for us to understand how to advise and police the, the appropriate use of the technology. For schools, yeah, of course schools in their office use technology in an embedded way. In some classrooms it's embedded, but very few. Um, there may be a recognition that you need technology at home in order to do homework, and in order to access content online to do that homework. But for many, they're now saying the disruptive impact of a mobile phone is too great for it to be allowed in the school. I think that's profoundly wrong. Uh, I understand the disruptive impact of phones, but we, and we have to have rules about the appropriate use and the misuse of phones. You know, when I was at school, people abused another tool called a pen to write abusive things about each other on the walls of toilets. No one suggested banning the pen because it was deemed to be too useful a learning tool. I think the computing power uh, that is in a phone is too useful a learning tool to be banned in a school. What about with social media though? Because it, we, we can't doubt the kind of the, the toxic effect of some of it, and particularly for people yeah, that, I, that kind of. I completely age. see that the um, the sort of narcissism that it's creating through Instagram, Snapchat, some of those other platforms. Um, YouTube is part of a mental health crisis that we're seeing particularly amongst uh, adolescent girls which is really alarming um, it's part of the story of something that's going on that's making childhood pretty toxic and so that goes back to how can we work with the technology companies uh, with parents, with schools as the universal service, but who it's not their responsibility entirely, but they are the universal service through which we access children and parents. How can we b bring those together to, to find ways of educating parents and children how to use social media responsibly? Um, you know, the whole black and white behavior, the echo chamber of social media is, 
it's horrible to observe as a, as a recovering politician when I see the way some of my friends in Parliament are abused for their views. Um, when you see a guy murdering 50 people in New Zealand and live streaming it on Facebook, you know, it is possible to use these tools in a, in a deeply offensive, corrosive and destructive way. But I still say that doesn't mean you ban them. It means that we have to all work harder and learn how to use them. Yeah, we didn't decide to ban the motor car when the first person was run sure. over. A, a, a lot's been written about mental health of, of our younger generation right now. Less attention given to mental health problem affecting teachers. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of worrying data out there about teacher retention uh, and teachers can actually become <laughs> victims of social yep. media kind of vendettas as well. Um, what do you think can be done, needs to be done to improve teacher retention, particularly around that, that whole mental yeah, I think challenge? You're right to start with teacher well-being. Um, we, we have a very compliant culture in schools. And um, I've started saying when I meet groups of teachers and head teachers, look for where the rules aren't. Uh, and really focus on those places as places where you can really have a rich experience teaching and learning. Um, because I'm afraid I think the accountability system has been dialed up so high. And the narrowness of the EBAC, you know, which is an accountability measure, saying that sort of is infatuated by the academic subjects at the expense of the applied and the creative subjects. Um, th that's squeezing out a lot of the joy of from the profession. The, um, the workload challenges that they have, uh, the reporting challenges that they have uh, are intense. We now have the budgetary pressures coming in on top of that so that you know, with local authorities cutting special needs funding, there are there's less support in classroom for special needs kids. So, the the classroom teacher then has to be able to manage that behaviour alongside everybody else's behaviour, and that creates an environment of low level disruption that increases the amount of stress in the classroom. That increases the amount of sickness days that teachers are taking. That in turn increases the amount of supply cover, which adds more budgetary pressure and increases the behavioural problems because these teachers, supply teachers, don't know the class, and you create a spiral that is pretty vicious. And we need to look at all the places where we can relieve that and uh, yeah I know government is is uh, trying to do something about well-being and recruitment. Damien Lyons announced, uh, made an announcement last week. Yeah that's right and you know he's saying that you know he's going to really push in the comprehensive spending review whenever yeah. Brexit allows that to happen um, to get more money and yeah I think there is an understanding around those pressures within the, within government but we urgently need these Is, is it this point? It's a, it, it's a crisis when we're, you know, here at TES we're saying that in, in five years' time the secondary schools in England will be 47,000 secondary school teachers short. That's more, more than double what we train every year. And that's a crisis. It's a crisis when there are no maths teachers in a secondary school. There'll be people who are called maths teachers, but no one who's got a maths degree. And uh, that's really hard. 
uh, when we really need, you know, when kids and our economy need those skills to say that we've got a system that's fit for purpose, it's not. How can, how can TES help? How does this man all of this manifest itself in your day job? Because I know a lot of people, to a lot of people, TES is Times Education Supplement and yep. it's a magazine. I obviously know it's a, it's a lot a lot more than that. Um, and I know there's a real sense of mission and purpose that drives yeah. the organisation in yeah. terms of being for teachers. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, we, we absolutely believe in the power of great teaching to change children's lives. And, yeah, we exist to connect schools and teachers together to help them around the world be able to do that. And uh, I feel very passionate about that, that sense of mission. Uh, I'm really proud of having helped TES grow our uh, teacher training institute. So we're now the fifth largest qualifier of teachers in England. So you know, it wasn't enough for us to just help schools be able to recruit and teachers find jobs. We had to be able to grow the pool of, ca of candidates by training more teachers. Um, but uh, we connect teachers every day with teaching resources that they share with each other. And that saves teachers a bunch of time. So that reduces a, a bunch of workload pressure. So that's, that's a help as well. Uh, and then um, we are doing enough through news and those resources and training and jobs so that over 80% of teachers and, and over 90% of head teachers are on our site at least once a week. And that engagement then allows us to provide better recruitment services so that schools are in a better place to be able to find the teacher that they want than they would be otherwise. But it's still really tough. And so this isn't something that we can do on our own. It's something that we have to work with others uh, to assist. So we, we have to help be a part of growing the pool of candidates. We have to be a part of persuading school leaders that they can employ more flexibly. The, the timetabling can work for part-time teachers so that you can then widen the pool further by getting back some of the people who've left the profession because they wanted to work part-time. There's a significant number of those. Um, there's work that we can do with others around helping those teachers who've left England to go and teach in other countries to be able to come back when they're ready. Uh, and uh, create uh, more of a global teacher labour market because that's what it's become, but it's a one-way market at the moment. We need to make it a two-way yeah. um, so that we're importing teachers as well as exporting them. And we, sh we need to use our influence and our convening power to do all of that. What's your view on um, older first-time teachers? So Lucy Calloway is from the uh, previous yeah. FT, is a well-known right. example of this, and I, I have a vested interest because it's my planned for Okay. second or third career to our Good. earlier conversation. Well, uh, well as I said earlier, I'd, I'd love it if everyone in the context of multiple careers decided to spend one of their careers on, on education and teaching. Um, so I, I'm completely supportive of it. I think we need to make it a bit easier. Um, at the moment, when I've spoken to people who've done it, some of them have completely loved it. And it's, you know, duck to water time. But others have found the stresses, and I think Lucy's one of them actually. She's now working part time. She's no longer. She's been very doing open maths. about finding it way harder than um, she, she thought. Yeah. That uh, the the pressures that are there, working very long days, come kind of up on your feet performing for a big chunk of that time, and if you're not well prepared, that's exhausting because you're relying on a lot of your own 
sort of performance energy and, and emotional energy to sort of keep it interesting and relevant and uh, exciting. Um, so that preparation time, uh, the marking time, the all of the accountability time, uh, you know, in, in our country, we have some of the longest hours that teachers are working uh, and the ratio of the amount of time they're spending not in the classroom relative to uh, in the classroom is is pretty appalling mm. by international comparison and that just sucks the vocation out of the profession and that's part of what we need to do in order to attract people like you in and give you a, also a sense of the remuneration and how you can get to a level where it's affordable yeah well it doesn't feel like there's about to be a ton <laughs> a ton more budget no. assigned to to education or or, or indeed anything um which brings us inevitably <laughs> onto onto politics um i have to ask about the the well i'm gonna just ask you how you feel about the current state of politics i think first it, we are living through a catastrophe we have a political infrastructure that is built around having functional political parties that then uh, select representatives for us to elect who act as representatives rather than delegates so they, are, they have independent thought and make decisions on the basis of national interest rather than just what their constituents or their political interests dictate. And those representatives form a government that is functional. That's, what that, yeah, sure. that's the assumption. <laughs> <laughs> and all of those assumptions have just disappeared. They've just left. Uh, neither of the political parties, the main political parties, are functioning properly at the moment. Um, they're both divided, they're both led by people who are representing their members, but the membership of those parties do not represent the majority of the country, I don't think. Um, the, there's this sort of vacuum in the sort of pragmatic centre, because the Liberal Democrat brand has shot, it's just gone. And there's a complete blurring of the left, right, yeah. previous, yeah. just constructs and um, ideologies. Well, and left and right doesn't really work in the context no. of Brexit. No. Uh, and sort of Trumpism and this sort of rise of populism and, and nationalism. And we, uh, we're therefore in a real pickle. Um, and at the same time, I think the environment around social media, you know, what happened to Joe Cox, the uh, anti-Semitic abuse that Luciana Berger and others have been receiving, um, makes becoming a member of parliament, becoming an elected politician, far less attractive. You know, whatever the popular press may say, it's not that well remunerated, uh, given the responsibility and the hours and everything that you're, you're required to take to, to, to work. Um, and, and then we wonder why we don't really have any leaders. Um, it's, it's, uh, it feels pretty bleak to me right now. Now, that's not to say we might be living at a point where there's this burning platform and something has to change significantly out of all of this and that we are at an inflection point and we will get something quite different as a result. 
I don't know what that is, and I don't know when that is. Reconfiguring of the party makeup. It might be. It might be. Reform. But it, yeah, it, it might be a combination of saying uh, we need electoral reform. It's a bizarre anachronism that on mm. on a Thursday and only on a Thursday, we use a paper and pen to mark a cross in order to elect a representative via which we're electing the leader of the country. Yeah, we might move to a position where we directly elect the leader of the country. That would be revolutionary. Um, we might get to a point where we get rid of an unelected House of Lords, of which I'm a member. But I would hope we don't just replace it with a rival elected House like the House of Commons, where we do something different. And I'm really interested in citizens' juries and citizens' assemblies as different ways of engaging people democratically in, in helping to make good decisions. Um, all of that, I think, could and should be explored as uh, as part of how we move forward. Now, it, that in turn may well disrupt the political parties mm -hmm. because, yeah, I suppose I think there will always be a version of a Conservative Party because there will always be a, a political appetite for no change. Um, but the change parties may well need to be different because, you know, the Labour Party was formed as an industrial party. Mm, yeah. Now, either it has to, and the trade unions that formed it, have to adapt more quickly than they appear to at the moment to a post-industrial age, or something will replace them. Um, and then there'll be a place for others, you know, nationalists, Greens, uh, some kind of uh, economically conservative but socially liberal thing that we might today call the Lib Dems. But we'll, the, we'll, it feels like we, we, we necessarily must have a, a more proportionate system to reflect that multiplicity of views. I, 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 yeah. I can't see. I think uh, that's. I think that's right. I think we're, we're remaining tenable for. <laughs> we are long. less tribal uh, in our politics. There's more consumerism in politics. You know, it used to be when I first started canvassing some time ago that if you've spoke to one person in the house who was Labour, nine times out of ten the rest of the house would be Labour. That's far less likely now. Yeah. I'm going to ask the Brexit question, but I'm going to ask it slightly differently. Uh, Please. Because I think it's, again, an exercise in futility trying to uh, <laughs> predict what's going to happen. Um, I'm going to uh, cast our minds forward 20, 30 years to a classroom setting okay. where a, uh, a student of history is sitting, being taught about what happened in 2016 to 90. Um, what kind of Britain are they living in? And what are the teachers telling them about what, what happened? 30 years, did you say? 20, 30, 40. 20, 30, 40. Oh, Far yeah. enough out, because our politicians and, and the whole party system is not geared to no. thinking that, that far no. out, which I think is part of the problem yeah. we have, actually. But. Well, I, I would offer two possible visions for the the country and the world that they're living in. There is one a dystopian future, which is one where the populace won out, where you know. It's the Orwellian version. <laughs> well, it's yeah, it's not a positive one. Yeah. So you know, you, it could be that um, Brexit and Trumpism were part of a growth in protectionism and a growth in uh, isol isolationism and nationalism that um, you know, we can see in the rise of the, the populist right 
some of whom are in government across Europe, as well as in the US, uh, and that that then leads to a, a big economic correction um, in the end of 2019, um, as the trade war between China and the US escalates, um, and the, a very fragile euro economy collapses the the single European currency, uh, and that that, um, that then triggers a global economic crisis much bigger than 2008, um, because uh, China essentially doesn't have the money to lend the rest of the world to bail it out, because it's already ba lent it back in 2008, uh, and uh, their interest rates uh, have already been very liberalised, so they're already very low, so there's not room to liberalise them further to stimulate more in the economy. So you know, all that's left for policymakers is to just print money. And that's dangerous at a time of populism. That's what the Weimar Republic did before yeah. Nazism. So you know, you've got a whole sense of that was the time when everything fell apart and our history student is going, and so that's why now we're living in a place that feels a lot more like sort of 40s, 1940s, um, 100 years on, with technology and with uh, the echo chamber. Um, and uh, But happily, Greta is now running the United Nations <laughs> and it's going to help us out a bit. Um, uh, or, um, or there's a more positive one, which is that um, whatever happens on Brexit, the world looked over the edge and said, actually our way forward is to come together. Um, our way forward is to, uh, is to say, we need a better sense of global governance around some of the excesses of technology, around some of the excesses of um, fossil fuel depletion um, and pollution and, and the environment um, and uh, the, but we will continue with moves towards more free trade and less protection and we will create a world where we're closer together and we're more understanding of each other and more respectful of each other and that we've achieved that by those reforms of education that happened through the 20s like that, uh, that uh, really nurtured that sense like that, of regeneration. Much more hopeful, optimistic yeah. view. Um, I wanted to ask, just b before, before we finish, uh, I know one of your other passions, the mm. non-education question, is the regeneration of our seaside towns. Yeah. A bit of a subject change. Um, and as someone who grew up on the South Devon coast myself, I'm fascinated by our, the kind of coastal renaissance that's going on in a town like Margate, for example, yep. it's incredible. Um, can you just you want to talk a little bit, just quickly, about why why this matters to you personally and to Britain in the context of our changing country? Well, in part, it matters to me as someone who represented Weymouth in Parliament for nine years, and where I see a borough where every single secondary school is in a Ofsted category and where it's in real trouble. I think. Uh, and, the, and that distresses me. Partly it's also as a geographer. I look at the difficulties of living on the periphery and how, you know, 
we now have a national economy that is powered by London. You know, if London didn't exist, we'd have been in recession for every year for, uh, since 2008. Um, uh, and you know, our big cities are the powerhouses of the economy, partly by design, which is flawed, because we're not seeing a trickle down to the, to the periphery. And it's really hard then for those places to have a future. Uh, and there's no great surprise then that they're the places that are more likely to have voted Brexit um, because they don't see hope. And uh, so my sense is if we can regenerate the seaside towns and work out how to do that, then we'll have worked out how to, uh, how to heal some of the divisions in our country as a whole and create an economy and a society that is more inclusive geographically by definition and therefore more inclusive generally for everyone. Um, there are some great uh, examples of places that have done it well. I think um, Margate is certainly one of them. Folkestone, Brighton's doing well. Bournemouth's doing well. You know, Blackpool has a lot of problems. You know, when you look at um, health outcomes and addiction and education outcomes in secondary, but it also has a lot going for it. Um, partly because it's got some scale and it's it's the most visited place still in Britain. Um, so it's got a, it's got wealth in its hospitality sector in terms of what what, what its potential is. Um, but, and you know, St Ives, uh, down in Cornwall, um, is another good example where they found the arts, they found food, they found um, doubling down on hospitality, um, investing in young people in folks' yeah. case. Um, they've found leadership that's not temporary. They found leadership that is enduring. Um, you know, Folkestone's very interesting. There's a guy called Roger DeHaan who's really, as a philanthropist, provided the leadership that's, that's helped Folkestone be successful again. Um, Brighton, I think there was a, a period where the council did really well in Brighton. And so in that case, the local authority provided leadership. So you need to find those leaders. But their, their vision has to then be about how you reconnect that community to the core you know those places built up because they had a relationship with with the economic powerhouses of, yeah. of, the, of industrial Britain as the places they went on holiday and they defined that relationship and they they were economically su successful out of that now I think it is saying there's a great quality of life to be had on, on our, in our coastal communities if we can connect them better both physically and digitally then why not go and run your business from there? Yeah. You know, why, why don't we change our rail franchises so you, they have to offer a two or three day a week season ticket so you can still come in and do, do a bunch of face to face meetings because they're still important um, a couple of days a week but you can then have the great quality of life with your kids in a great place yeah. that's a beautiful environment and and build successful businesses that then start to employ people and relate to an education system that we've turned around that is providing a pipeline f of talent for you into your business. And that's how you rebalance the national economy. Not yeah. run London down, but, yeah. but yeah. educated yeah, London, workforce. London in, is growing. Our incredible, uh, yeah, it's growing at a rate of at least one double-decker bus full of people every day. Yeah. That's unsustainable. We can't. No one can afford to live here. Um, it's really expensive to have an office here. It, it's, it can't last, and, and I, as a geographer, you know, I know all about the core link between urbanisation and industrialisation. Um, I just wonder whether there's a post 
urban post-industrial future that revitalises our market towns and our coastal towns. That's a fascinating place to end. <laughs> and maybe if I get to talk to you again, I'll, I'll ask about a post-urban future. Um, thank you so much, Jim, and I for you. talking to, to me today. Um, if you enjoy our podcast, please hit subscribe and share. And I'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.